American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. New Hampshire votes and Donald Trump won't accept victory gracefully. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Larry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity, Woods Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are How the World Works and Bound by Oath. More about both of those podcasts in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we have the New Hampshire result in was not as bad as a lot of the polling suggested, which had it 20 or maybe higher in this Boston Globe tracking poll right at the end, but still a very solid double-digit victory for Donald Trump, the first Republican candidate since the inception, formal inception of the Iowa caucuses to win both Iowa and New Hampshire. If you've been around for a while, this is always the holy grail and every candidate, if I, if I can go one, two, you know, I can put this away. I remember George W. Bush, you know, in 2000 talk, talking like that and it never happens. It, you know, as Noah says, there's kind of a, a natural hydraulic reaction usually in New Hampshire to what Iowa does, or Nikki Haley put it, New Hampshire corrects what Iowa does, but no correction here, a, a, a better, stronger finish for the second place finisher, but Donald Trump above 50 in both places. What do you make of it? Well, look, as many predicted, as it looked, it is almost close. It's like a 99% certainty that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee in 2024. <laughs> but what makes this a little more interesting is that we've now had these two contests and 49% of Republicans voted for somebody other than Donald Trump in Iowa. And in this one, with a considerable amount of highest turnout ever in a uh, in any primary in New Hampshire, uh, Trump, as of this morning, was in the neighborhood of, was it 53%, 54%? And 50, you know, 45% voted for somebody else, almost all of them voting for Nikki Haley. So it's very hard to see a scenario where Nikki Haley wins, really, not just, you know, her home state of South Carolina coming up in about a month. You really got to squint and scratch your head to find any state where you think she could win outright. But it's not hard to see a scenario where she's getting anywhere from 30 to 40 to maybe 45 or, you know, maybe even a little north of that in a whole bunch of contests, that there's a bunch of Republicans who, they're, they're, the majority of Republicans want Trump. But that minority that doesn't want him is pretty sizable. Not quite half, but, you know, a decent chunk, certainly more than a third. And the question is then going to be, uh, what can Nikki Haley do if she continues to, you know, stay in this race? And last night she sounded like she wanted to. 
Uh, Americans for Prosperity Action said, we are in this thing. We're not quitting. We're not cutting off funding. Um, you know, it's conceivable she goes to the convention with 30 to 40% of the delegates. That's that's not nothing. That's a, you know, a decent amount of leverage. So you know, does she want to use that to end up on the ticket? I mean, look how great things turned out for the last person who was Trump's vice president. Um, you know, you too could have an angry mob chanting to hang you. Uh, but, you know, that, that, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, if you are, there's a chunk of the party that doesn't want Trump. And the, uh, the message from the Trump crowd is too, tough, tough noogies. You got to stay, you know, fall in line. And I don't think they're necessarily inclined to do that. And I think also the, the, what we saw out of New Hampshire is that there's a lot of independents, a lot of people who I think were formerly Republicans and fell away from the party during the Trump years who are interested in coming back if the nominee were somebody like Nikki Haley. And I think if you're Trump, you'd much rather have those folks in your camp that, okay, a, a rational candidate would rather have uh, those voters in their camp than in the other camp. It is, there's some very ominous signs for Trump in the general election in these two contests we've seen so far. So um, I, I wrote in today's Morning Jolt reasons why Nikki Haley should leave, reasons why she should stay in. And I think on balance, she might as well stay in. Yeah, she's going to get a lot of grief about it. Yeah, she's going to lose her home state. But if you can walk into Milwaukee with a big chunk of delegates, why should you? Yeah, so let's um, – I want to, by the way, bracket – Trump's uh, victory. It, it was, it was a, I was kind of putting air, air quotes around it. It was a victory speech, but it's not the kind of speech you give usually when you've won a victory. I want to bracket that for uh, the next the next segment. But Noah, what's your reaction to, um, uh, we'll talk about Nikki Haley's, I'll ask you about Nikki Haley's path in a, in a second, but just just the, the results, kind of top line, not top line, but you, you, you go to the first layer underneath the top line, obviously the big split is unaffiliated voters versus Republican voters. Nikki Haley wins um, independents, unaffiliated voters by what, 60%. And then it's just wiped out among Republicans, um, winning just 25% among Republicans. And th there's this, this effort to kind of, uh, one, attack the New Hampshire process as being somehow illegitimate because independents uh, can vote. But no one was saying this in 2016 when Donald Trump won independents in New Hampshire. Now he won Republicans as well, plurality of both. Actually, according to the exit poll I was looking back at last night, it was 36-36, both among Republicans and independents. And no one, no Trump supporters said, how could, how could you do that? How, how could you win independents? What, what's wrong with you? What, what, what's, how could this happen? And there's a misunderstanding about uh, New Hampshire it's not a formally open primary. You have to register as a Republican. Now, now they make it easier for you to uh, register for, for as a Republican to vote and then unregister, you re-register as unaffiliated, a Democrat or whatever it is later, whereas South Carolina is an open primary. Yeah, and you had to register in October in order to participate in the Republican uh, election or primary in New Hampshire. So you had to put some thought into this way ahead of time. Uh, and you could register day of too, but... If you were a partisan Democrat, you had to re-register months and months ago. So your intentionality there was, it's not like on a whim. Um, and just to foreshadow the, the the part about the speech, you know, there was a little bit of insecurity on display in Donald Trump, and he has every reason to be insecure. High turnout election, not like Iowa, sure. The competitive race, a lot of enthusiasm from Republicans turned out for him. But uh, he won, as Jim said, 74% of Republicans who made up only 49% of the electorate. Got a very high raw vote total, highest ever, but he won only one third of non-aligned voters, 63% of whom, according to exit polls, said they will not vote for this guy in November. 
said pretty much the same thing among Republicans of those those Republicans who voted against Donald Trump. They're dead set against Donald Trump. And I don't think they're bluffing. I don't think a lot of these wounds are going to be healed over the course of this general election campaign, especially considering how Donald Trump is approaching the process of reconciliation. 19% of Republicans, according to AP VoteCast, said they won't vote for the guy in New Hampshire Republicans, registered Republicans. So they won't vote for the guy in November. 15% said the same in Iowa. Fox voter analysis has it much higher. 35% of Republicans in New Hampshire won't be voting for Donald Trump. I expect that to decline over the course of a very polarizing general election campaign, but there's still a very substantial amount of Republicans who are dead set against voting, not voting for Donald Trump, not participating, or even voting Democratic or third party. Um, that's a kiss of death in a, in a tight election. I don't you know, you can foresee a scenario in which Joe Biden underperforms to the extent that Donald Trump somehow ekes it out. But we've had two general elections now with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket of the percentage of their popular vote that he gets pretty reliable between 46, 47 percent. It's it would be silly for us to predict that there's some sort of miracle in which he overperforms that raw vote there. He might, you know, but in, in some dramatic sense, I don't I don't think so. 46, 47% seems to be his ceiling. And we don't know where, where Joe Biden is going to be. But the notion here that Democrats are really unenthusiastic about Joe Biden to the extent that they would just abandon him and, you know, make tacitly consent to a Trump restoration just isn't available, isn't apparent in these results. Trump has a big problem when it comes to Republican unity. And he doesn't seem inclined to heal that rift. Indeed, he seems more inclined to exacerbate it. I don't think his faction of the party really believes that they want to exist under the same tent. And believe me, the feeling is mutual. So this could foreshadow something of a much broader schism among Republicans. Um, three cycles of this sort of thing, and you're locked in. How, how long do you wait before you just affiliate with a completely different political uh, tribe. So Charlie, there, there are two ways to look at Trump's performance overall so far. Incredibly strong as a, a, a primary candidate, like stronger than we've ever seen, or notably weak as a de facto incumbent. Yes. I think there are enormous flashing signs here that ought to alarm Trump. There is this peculiar belief that what is as important or more important than the general is the primary, that one leads to the other. And I don't really see that being true. If anything, in recent elections, those two realms are non-overlapping. What has been good for Trump and MAGA has been bad for Republican prospects. I hear this word incumbent. Incumbent is a good thing to be if you want to be the choice of your party in the next election. But it's not great to be that and win, what was it, 53%, 57% of the vote. Incumbency is supposed to carry with it a lot more enthusiasm for that and i don't see it now noah talked a little bit about unity and he's written well on this but he focused on unity or disunity as the result of the primary process 
This is how most people who are involved in these primaries talk. But it's somewhat solipsistic. The reality here is that the vast majority of the people who do not want to vote for Donald Trump or who do not want Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee have not taken that view because of Donald Trump's behavior in this primary. They've not taken that view because of some deep-seated policy disagreement that was fleshed out during these primaries. They've taken that view because of Donald Trump's behavior at various points over the last nine years. That's not going to change. I don't know how many of the people who showed up in New Hampshire yesterday to vote for Nikki Haley will not vote for Donald Trump if he's the nominee. But I know that a lot of those people, that is people who are in that camp, are not able to unite with Trump because they have ruled out Trump. And again, not because of tax policy or a difference over interventionism or a dislike of Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, but because they just will not go for Trump after he's done what he's done. There is no uniting to be had. So I think if you're Trump, you've won the primaries. I think if you look at Iowa and New Hampshire, you should come away pleased with yourself that you are now going to be the nominee, absent some strange occurrence, which could happen, but probably won't. But you should be extremely alarmed at the way in which you did it and the signal that you have been sent going into... November. This is simultaneously a sign of Trump's weakness in zone one, which is within the political realm, and Trump's, uh, sorry, Trump's strength within that realm, and his weakness in the country at large. So Jim Garrity, next question to you on, on this topic. After the first two contests, looking ahead to the general election, you are more bullish on Trump's chances, more bearish, or pretty much the same? A bit more bearish. Uh, ominous piece of evidence number one was the much lower turnout in the Iowa caucus. Yes, there was bad weather. Yes, the you know didn't, race didn't look as near, as competitive as it might once have. But you know you'd rather have higher turnout than lower. And yeah, there was higher turnout in the New Hampshire primary, but it certainly looks like a big chunk of them were independents and you know potentially crossover Democrats who wanted to vote against Trump and were interested in a non-Trump option. Both of them look pretty ominous for uh, a general election Biden versus Trump matchup. Noah. Yeah, I share uh, Jim's view here. The high turnout is somewhat misleading insofar as it's sort of a reflection of the general election and microcosm. Trump motivates Republican turnout in a competitive election, but he motivates precisely the same counter turnout among people who don't like him. As we saw in, in Iowa, there was a there was lower turnout, but it was more pronounced in places like Story and Dallas County and Polk and places that are urban and suburban. And we saw something very similar here. Exit polls in New Hampshire suggest that Trump won a majority of the vote in rural, rural, urban and suburban areas, according to what voters told exit pollsters. But the map doesn't look that way. The map looks like those, uh, with the exception of places like Manchester, which is very working class, uh, the suburbs and urban areas turned out to vote for Nikki Haley. And that is the story of the Republican Party in the Trump era is that they are maximizing their their turnout in really rural areas and the creating a counter reaction in the suburbs, which used to be the Republican bread and butter. And they are high proclivity voters. They turn out regardless. So, um, yeah, I don't think the, in, a, in a head to head election with no 
exogenous factors and third party candidates that scramble everybody's calculations head to head against Joe Biden and Donald Trump favors Joe Biden. Charlie. I mean, I just think that's exactly right. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. And yet somehow when it happens, it will be. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Um, This is a risky, risky choice. DeSantis or Haley would, would have been more electable, but on the the other side of of the ledger, you have uh, the weakest presidential incumbent running for re-election since H.W. Bush or Jimmy Carter, um, with the with the added uh, disadvantage that uh, both of those men were considered uh, correctly capable of carrying out the job, like physically and mentally, for the next four years, on the off chance they did get reelected, and that's not true of Joe Biden. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast hosted by author and political commentator, our old friend, Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives from flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe. Some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that inform their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, both of whom, old friends, as mentioned, and colleagues of all of us here at National Review for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash howtheworldworks. That's cei.org slash howtheworldworks. Please check it out. So, Jim, let me start with you again. So I'm sure Donald Trump's uh, campaign team, small, but I think incredibly impressive. This has begun to sh- show up in, in the reporting. I mean, one of the dumbest things Ron DeSantis did, and I don't know the ins and out of it, outs of it, it was alienating Susan Wiles, I believe ran his first campaign down there in Florida, and she goes over uh, to Trump and screws him from beginning to end. She's a very effective operator, Chris uh, La Civita, impressive as well. And Trump is, you know, more, more than uh, is his want, has has listened to them. So in relative terms, relative, under, underlying relative terms, uh, tr- Trump has been fairly disciplined uh, most of this campaign. You saw it in Iowa, right? He was nice, you know, and he's, he's kind of entertaining and uh, charming uh, when he's nice. But then last night, clearly what they told him or should have told him is, thank Nikki Haley, but say, Nikki, you know, good job, the race, race is over. And let's talk about the border. You know, th- this is this is my first general election uh, event. And if they told him that, he totally ignored it. He was visibly angry after winning New Hampshire by double digits, w- winning the first contests going away. He was angry that Nikki Haley, as every candidate who's staying in the race does, Went out early when the margin was a little narrower than, than it would end up. I think she went out when it was about seven po- points. It was in single digits and gave a, a speech about how she was, she was carrying on. And um, this was a, a, an impressive finish for her. And Donald Trump is unsuitable in, in various ways. And we'll, we'll see you see down the road. And Trump just was obsessed with this. He, he repeatedly came back to it. He didn't actually technically call himself angry, but he says, I don't get angry, I get revenge, which is what you say when you're angry, right? And then talking about revenge on a night when you're 
when it's over 50%, it's, it's just, it's hard to believe. It's like a parody of a, a Trump event. Among his many character flaws, Trump obsesses about stupid things, things that really don't matter in the big picture of things that you'd think a guy in his position would have bigger things to worry about, have bigger things to think about. Look back to his presidency and the degree of rage tweeting about what Don Lemon said about him. You, a, a healthy human being should not care about what Don Lemon says about them. And I count this even if you know Don Lemon personally. No one should be, you know, getting that upset. And you could point to raging about Mika Brzezinski and allegedly how she had plastic surgery. You know, like, you know, for a guy who, like, you're president of the United States. You get up every day and you sit behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. And every day people are coming into your office with new problems. New, big, national, global problems that you, you know, that you, are, fall on your desk and you got to do something about them. And Trump doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about that stuff. He's certainly not going to worry about the deficit and the debt. Seems to be very buddy-buddy with Xi Jinping, not worried about all kinds of stuff. But what was being said about him on cable news, that stands out in his mind a great deal. And so in this case, look, he just won the New Hampshire primary by a very solid margin. The nomination is his. But he couldn't do it. He had, and not only does he, you know, say, oh, Nikki Haley, he's got to make fun of her dress. He's got to humiliate Tim Scott. <laughs> he's he's got to have, you know, celebrate Vivek. Um, it's just more of the same from him. And and this is a guy who is, with with one or two exceptions, bored by policy, doesn't really care about the details, hand waves it away, gets into office in, in 2017 and says, oh, no one could have predicted that healthcare was so complicated. Oh, no. Only the people who'd ever looked at healthcare policy could have predicted that, Mr. President. So that's where we are. He learns nothing. He changes nothing. We're just going to get more of this. And, you know, the attitude we saw last night and the attitude we've seen over most of his campaign is an adamant faith that there is no need to expand his appeal. There's no need to win over any of those independents. There's no need to win over any of those soccer moms or the suburbanites, white-collar workers who left the Republican Party over the last eight years. No, no. A combination of his MAGA base and Joe Biden's incompetence are going to be enough to put him into the Oval Office again. And up until very recently, I think that, you know, you could you could run the numbers and you could see that. The swing state polling was looking bad for Biden. National polling looks bad for Biden. Now, some polling indicates people are feeling better about the economy in the last month or so. You know, it's kind of, are we sure everybody's going to be feeling as frustrated about the state of the country in October, November, when early voting starts than they are now? I don't know if that's a guarantee. And, you know, Trump is really relying on events. Trump is really relying on outside factors to be enough to push him over the top instead of doing that, you know, old fashioned thing of trying to broaden your appeal to new groups of voters. So I would, I would, uh, make a little amendment. I think he realizes, as I've talked to people who say that I've actually had the conversations with, with them, that that he needs help with among suburban women. That's one reason he's talking about the possibility of a, a, a woman veep, but he, it's kind Carrie of Lake's worse. Gonna it's not, for that. What's that? Carrie Lake's going to do wonders for oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think he's going to pick Carrie Lake, but we, we can do some, some veep chat in an episode coming up. But I, I think he understands it but he can't control himself such that he he will do all the things necessary to maximize his chances with with those people, which I, which I think is worse than just not not thinking they're important or he, or he needs to do it. And Charlie, th this this gets back to Veep, and you know we don't need to go over uh, do do Veep punditry. But J Jim hit on uh, mentioned Vivek and Tim Scott, and I thought that was 
there was a lot of cringe, cringeworthy things in this event, but that might have been the most cringeworthy. Both of these guys want to be on the ticket. Trump knows both of these guys want to be on the ticket. And Trump, Trump knows because of that, he can humiliate them, right? And, and uh, um, some of it was, was a, a little bit explicit, but a lot of it's just implicit. I'm going to tell you to perform and do it right now. You know, and Vivek happily did it. You know, it was an absurd performance. And then uh, Tim Scott did it as well. And I just find, I think Tim, Tim Scott is totally beclowned himself. I'm not a huge fan of the shouty kind of uh, preacher thing. Um, but doing it, you know, at, at these at these Trump events to please the guy, you know, that that he's submitting himself to is oh, it's so I, I kind of feel feel sorry for him, but what's your take? Well I, I think Jim, you're being a little bit unfair to Trump. When like Donald Trump, you have a great and pronounced and unfailing sense of honor when you believe in the integrity of the system and would do nothing to harm it, to watch someone else cast doubt on the outcome of an election must be truly painful. I think Trump tuned in. He saw Nikki Haley in his eyes implying that she'd won when in fact she'd lost. And he thought, I will not stand for that sort of conduct. And he couldn't help himself but to call it out like the American patriot that he is. I mean, are you kidding me? There was some tweet from Mark Levin where he said that Nikki Haley's behavior last night was disgraceful. She implied she'd won an election when she'd lost, and she engaged in self-aggrandizement. Do those two things sound familiar to you? Come on. We're in the twilight zone here. Haley said what everyone says when they've come second and a close second. She congratulated Trump for winning, for goodness sake. I just cannot stomach this duplicity, this hypocrisy. On the other question, this is another reason that Trump is a bad person who should be regarded as a bad person. I don't want a president who enjoys humiliating others or playing with them like a cat plays with a mouse. Yes, that's what happened. What happened last night with Trump and Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy is familiar. This is what he does with everyone. He uses any power that he has to bend them to his will. Sometimes he tests them to see if they will humiliate themselves, which he interprets as loyalty. He did this famously a few years ago to Chris Christie. He even managed to do it to Mitt Romney, inviting him to that dinner and then not giving him a role. Now, of course, you have to submit to it. You have to acquiesce. And there are far too many people in our politics who are willing to do just that. But there is something wrong with the person who seeks that out. I don't want that person in the Oval Office. I think that is a character flaw. That is a form of bullying. We're not going to get the presidency that I want, the Calvin Coolidge presidency, but at least some humility in the most powerful man in the federal government, perhaps the world, would be nice. That was another example yesterday. Yes, of the pusillanimity of, of Tim Scott and of Vivek Ramaswamy and before them of Chris Christie and of so many people, but also of Donald Trump's perverse pleasure 
in manipulating other people. It's yeah, grotesque. I would, I would think, uh, <clears throat> I don't think he's going to, would pick them anyway, but I think having humiliated them this way means Trump's really not, not going to pick them. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's sort of part of the game. And I think I said, we weren't going to get into v- punditry and we shouldn't, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I think is, uh, a real good candidate to be the pick. And she's sort of been, you know, she's been a little, not cool is too strong a word, but um, it takes great sense not to be on that stage behind Donald Trump, right? Because you feel like, oh, I'm at the center of the world. I'm with the winner. And you're really making a a fool of yourself. So uh, Noah, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, just on that, it's also interesting when you've seen people in different contexts as to who is willing to do it and who is not. I haven't seen enough Mm -hmm. of Sari Sanders, but Elise Stefanik, in the hearing that went so viral, was an intelligent grown-up who looked like a Harvard-educated lawyer. Elise Stefanik around Donald Trump is a giggling schoolgirl. He has this ability to turn people into uh, pathetic versions of themselves. I hope that Sarah Huckabee Sanders can resist it. I'm not entirely convinced that she can, but it will make me feel better, marginally better about the ticket if he does pick somebody who has the self-awareness and the pluck to demonstrate that they can't be made into a toy. Yeah, so I'm not saying that if she's picked, she won't end up, you know. No, I know you're not. <laughs> in this situation, I'm just saying she she, she might be a little <clears throat> shrewder than, than these others, but but I'm just guessing. On Stefanik, and again, I didn't, didn't want to veeps, we're, we're talking veeps. When she did that Meet the Press interview, that was the the audition. One, just as a matter of just like formal uh, performance, be, being able to return every serve was was a, a kind of impressive. But the way she immediately adopted the term hostage for the January 6th prisoner, she may not, I don't know, maybe she's more plugged into right-wing politics than, than I am and heard that term before and knew that she had to adopt it. And it was kind of coming. But it may have been the first time she heard it was when it was quoted to her as Trump having said this. And she immediately used the term. It was like, that's when I thought, okay, she's serious. She really wants this. Yeah. Really wants she's not going to get it. I don't think. All right, so Noah, what do you think of Nikki Haley's speech? Was it good, bad, anything untoward about it? And and what's the path ahead here for her? I just think if she stays in, you know, we all kind of uh, at least most of us kind of mock the Rubio three two one plan. But I think her plan, you know, would be three two 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 one whenever Washington D.C. comes up, and then two two two. I just think that's really hard to. Uh, uh, to, to endure unless, especially when the, your home state's the next primary that you're going to contest and you'll probably lose handily, uh, unless you're, you're just going to make yourself into a protest candidate. I'm warning about this. You know, it's going to end badly. Um, I, I know I can't stop it, but I'm just here to tell you. And, you know, and I'm holding up the banner for an alternative and, you know, that's the way it is. I, I don't, I don't read her as wanting to go down that path because you might be proven right, but you also totally immolate yourself. I don't think she has a, a chance in, in 28 anyway, but um, she, she's kind of a careful politician, but w- where are you on those, all this? I mean, there was nothing untoward about it. She was uh, gracious in accepting her defeat. As Charlie said, she congratulated Donald Trump at the outset, but she didn't get out. And in not getting out, she maintained and reiterated some of the cam- campaign things themes she's been retailing over the last couple of weeks, among them challenging him to a debate, <clears throat> questioning his mental fitness, noting his abominable electoral record. All that stuff is really rote. 
Um, but it set Donald Trump off in a profound way because she demonstrated that she was not yet kissing the ring. It wasn't the sort of speech you would expect to hear from somebody who sees a future for themselves in Republican politics. But it's the night of the election. There's plenty of time to erase this sort of thing. There's no reason for her to get out and crush the hopes of her supporters in that victory party uh, that night. There's a month between now and South Carolina. There's plenty of time to engineer a graceful exit if she wants to. And if she wants to amass delegates by staying on the ballot, well, she'll be there too. And she can run a shadow campaign if she wants to. None of this is a particular threat to Donald Trump, which is what made his reaction so off-putting. If Charlie is right, and I think he is, it doesn't get better than this for the Trump faction. This is the high school game. This is homecoming. And you're going to be going back to it forever. I can't imagine Donald Trump will not spend the remainder of the general election obsessing over the teeny tiny rump of conservative dissenters who just won't eat the dog food. And by the way, if he loses in November, he'll blame his loss on them insofar as he deems to acknowledge that he lost it all. The swearing on the stage, the humiliating his allies, the rejecting of basic conventions that you know uh, establish conviviality, this is what f his fans really like about him. The, the people who give interviews to Politico, I don't know if you saw it, did a lot of, a lot of, uh, it was, it was making the rounds yesterday. The people who tell Politico that, you know, they, they want to see the system torn apart. They want America to be burnt down. They love these sort of just rejections of, uh, the basic contours of civil society that Donald Trump just will not adhere to. They like it, but they're, that's not how stakeholders in the system behave. People who are invested in the future of this country for ourselves and our children don't love that sort of thing, find it rather repulsive. And guess what? Those people are reliable voters. Depressed voters who hate everything, who think everything is, they are beset by forces beyond their control, who really resent their station in life, who don't like getting out of bed in the morning, are not reliable voters. Depressed people don't show up at the polls. But that is the coalition that Donald Trump has amassed for himself. With the exception of a fluke event in 2016, we have no evidence, very little evidence, that MAGA is a vote-getter. And yet they double down on the same tactics, in part because it energizes his fans. And fan is the key word here. Donald Trump is creating for himself a fan club, not a winning coalition of disparate interests designed to get 50 plus 1% at the polls in a national electorate. It's a very different approach to politicking that he's taking. It worked once and only once. But they keep trying the same thing again. And we have to assume at a certain point that winning isn't the goal here, either for Donald Trump or his fan base. But they get something else out of this. Scott Jennings at CNN said something. I think he didn't even mean to say it because it just kind of escaped his lips. And I love Scott. But he said something very interesting of the Republican electorate. It is that if, they wanna, if they're going to lose, they want to lose with the guy who's going to give them the biggest dopamine rush. And I think that's it. I think that thoroughly describes the Trump phenomenon, that they want to see fireworks. And if they win, they win. If they lose, they lose. But the fireworks are the point. Yeah, I would say, to quote another pundit on, on TV last night, I was on the this NBC live stream <laughs> during, during uh, as a result of coming in, and they had David Fluff on, who's a really shrewd guy, former Obama advisor. No one should forgive him for helping elect uh, Barack Obama. But but he you know he said, and, and he came on right, right during Trump's, speech in, in the aftermath. And what he said, which I think is correct, you're going to get this, you know, you'll get this, but not every day, you know, and he is going to, he's going to hammer 
Biden on on the issues and on his issue weaknesses. And if that's all he did, it'd be a much better campaign than one he's going to run because we're going to see see this stuff as well. And he also made, I, I think, a really shrewd point. Trump shouldn't even go to South Carolina. He doesn't need to campaign in South Carolina to win South Carolina. He should go to Michigan, right? The, the general election is on and I'm campaigning in the general. That'd be the best way to handle uh, Nikki. But, you know, of course, we saw last night. So, Jim, uh, before we leave New Hampshire, thoughts on the Biden-Dean Phillips race, which uh, we're, we've neglected in the first 40 minutes or so of this podcast. But, uh, Biden what, got uh, above 70 to get 75 or so, which se- seems to be the, the standard they set out or the pundits are um, willing to accept. But, you know, Dean Phillips is a total nobody, was totally frozen out by the Democratic Party at every level and, and gets 20% or so. Sort of a version of the same question, you know, we were just grappling with with Trump and, and the New Hampshire and Iowa results. Is, is this a good sign for Biden or a bad sign for Biden? I think it's a somewhat ominous sign. And to give you the very short version of my last column for that other place in Washington that I write. So the DNC essentially challenger-proofed the Democratic primaries for this cycle. Uh, traditionally, you start in Iowa, then you move on to New Hampshire. <laughs> you may remember that back in 2020, Iowa Democrats couldn't count the votes. Uh, for th- and We didn't have a winner for three days. And that was, we were like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that's going to happen in the year 2020. And uh, other bad things happened later that year. But like they said, okay, Iowa, you don't get to go first anymore. And New Hampshire, you don't get to go first either. Now, Sununu and other, even the New Hampshire Democrats were like, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. We're going to keep going first anyway. Last night, no delegates were uh, were allocated based on those results. It was entirely a beauty contest, so to speak. Um, but nonetheless, and so it starts with South Carolina, one of Biden's best states, moves on to Nevada. State he lost to Sanders, but didn't do too badly there. And then on to Michigan, and then on to Super Tuesday, where you've got like 13 big expensive states all going at the same time. So if you were some Democratic governor who was fairly popular and you thought Biden was too old and you wanted to run against him, you had a very limited runway to get any momentum before, you know, to take on an incumbent president. So Dean Phillips is taking on Mission Impossible here. And after making fun of him for hosting an event in... uh, Manchester a couple weeks ago, and absolutely no one showed up to his event. Note to self, don't host an event outdoors when it's 23 degrees out. Um, Good for you, Dean Phillips. Uh, Getting 20% against an incumbent president when you're a little-known Minnesota congressman, that's a pretty darn respectable outcome. And I think that does is an indicator that there are still a bunch of Democrats who are less than thrilled at having Biden. Of course, Biden, assuming he's healthy, is going to be the Democratic nominee. Um, but I think Phillips, you know, demonstrated that there are you know, one, even if he can't get people to show up to his events, he can get people to vote for him in better numbers than you'd expect. Biden wasn't on the ballot. He was a running as a write in because he was protesting the fact that it wasn't an official candidacy. Um, look, th- these are Democrats. Democrats are not in love with Biden as their nominee, but they don't see any realistic options at this point. And, you know, assuming he's healthy, it'll be Trump versus Biden again. So Noah Rothman, exit question to you. Nikki Haley will drop out and endorse Donald Trump within days, within weeks, within months, or never? Well, I, I don't think she goes on to South Carolina. I mean, a bit based on what we're seeing right now, it would be a humiliation for her. I mean, she can. She can compete there. She's spending there. Her pack is spending there. and It's her home state. She could try to retail her message there, but if it becomes a humiliation, 
it'd be even harder for her to amass delegates in the future. And certainly she wouldn't have much of a political career ahead of herself. And she probably wants that. And if she does want that, if she wants a future for herself in Republican politics and everything she said suggests she does, and I'm going to, I'm going to vote for the Republican nominee, blah, 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 all this really basic box checking exercises, then yeah, she probably gets out before South Carolina and endorses Donald Trump. Charles C. W. Cook. I think she's going to South Carolina. I have absolutely no inside information here, and my predictions are always terrible, but I sense something in the way she said it. She's going to keep going. So I love, Charlie, that, that th this is an interesting psychological uh, phenomenon. You, you slowly internalized my take on your predictions in the 2020 election, which is that, that, that they were not as good as Jim Garrity's. Whereas uh, you long maintained they were better, well, and they now were you're, better. You're, you're downgrading your own predictive ability. When uh, the story used to be that you nailed 20, the 2020 general, I'm much better at general elections than primaries. I'm <laughs> really poor with primaries. My general election record is pretty good, with the exception of 2016. Jim Garrity. I just want to begin by saying the DeSantis maneuver, when you insist you got your ticket punched and you sound on election night and then you don't drop out the following morning, six days go by, you tell Hugh Hewitt you got enough money and resources to go the distance and then you drop out right before the playoff games begin. Uh, that was weird. I don't think Nikki Haley will do that. I think she will either drop out very soon or I think she will in, stay in this for a while. And I think I'm, I'm leaning towards staying here for a while. As a Republican, somebody who's going to vote in the Republican primary, I would like on Super Tuesday here in Virginia. I'd like the, I'd like there to be a competitive primary. I'd like to have an option. So I hope she sticks around because there are folks who are less than thrilled with the idea of Trump being the nominee, and I think they'd like to have their say. And we shouldn't just decide the nomination after just two states have had their their had their say. So I, I'll say weeks, but maybe I would circle like uh, on the calendar, like at a week and a half. I, I sort of thought she'd be on the DeSantis trajectory, which was within days dropping out. But I, I think it might take a little longer than that. I just think I'm with Noah just looking at that prospect of falling into a, a black hole in your home state is even if she doesn't want a political career going forward. And I think she does be humiliating. And I, I think she'll she'll take an, an off-ramp before she gets there. And it's just going to be brutal. I mean, the, the, the MAGA is, is going to make her, you know, they've already started, obviously, it started in true earnest last night, but in, into a, a traitor and, and the, the worst person in the world that, that she is persisting in that and uh, a shadow Joe Biden supporter and all the rest of it. So I, I think before South Carolina, she'll get out and endorse with that let's hear from our second sponsor this episode the world would be a better freer and happier place if constitutional protections for private property were taken just a tad more seriously that's according to our friends over at the institute for justice who have just begun releasing a new season of their legal history podcast bound by oath bound by oath tells the story of how the supreme court has cleared the way for government officials to abuse property rights to trespass on private land without a warrant, to restrict peaceful and productive uses of property, to seize and keep property without sufficient justification, and much more. Featuring interviews not only with scholars and litigators, but also with the real-life people behind some of the Supreme Court's most momentous property rights decisions, the new season explores the history behind today's civil rights battle. So plug Bound by Oath into wherever you get your podcast and start with episode one. That's Bound by Oath from the great people who make an enormous difference at the Institute 
for justice. So, Charlie, let's go back to ancient history. I'd almost forgotten him until Jim brought him up. Ron DeSantis, or what, what Ron has been, <laughs> right, as Trump called him uh, last, last night. So some of us, certainly uh, I did, maybe you did as well. I don't want to characterize you, but we sort of spent, like, at least I, I spent, uh, you know, he's not in the race yet. Don't, how can you discount him when he's not in the race yet? Uh, you know, he's, this Twitter spaces thing was awful. Uh, may, may, maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll recover. It's, it's still early. You know, Iowa can kind of break late and, you know, uh, Ron, uh, uh, Rick Santorum surged in, in December in Iowa. I think I was a little later that, that year than, than it was, uh, uh, this year, but it, it could happen and, and just kept looking, waiting and, and nothing ever happened. You know, there's a little surge at the end in Iowa. Um, and the, the, the vaunted organization, made um, probably five points worth of difference, which, you know, saved him some humiliation, but didn't change uh, his fate. And, you know, you look at real clear politics of 538, the polling averages, uh, the graph of them, and it's just, it's a total inverse relationship with Trump. Trump, you know, from the beginning of the year up and DeSantis at the exactly the same rate down. What do you make of it? What went wrong? Well, that's a big question. You jokingly ask if we remember him. He's still the governor of Florida. I still see the good things that he's doing here. He was in a good position briefly. The double whammy of his 20-point re-election win. That oughtn't to be forgotten in a state that until recently was deemed a swing state. and the spectacular and abject failure of Trump's candidates in the 2022 midterms gave him a boost. But that boost didn't last. What went wrong, on the one hand, for some reason, Republican primary voters have responded to the indictment of Donald Trump by supporting him even harder. And on the other, DeSantis ran a bad campaign. Now, I don't think DeSantis ran as bad a campaign as some people think. I think that the presence of Donald Trump in the equation, as usual, completely distorted it. Trump is unique. He has an effect on the Republican Party that I've never seen, and I doubt we'll see again when he's gone. But there he was, nevertheless. And I don't think that DeSantis played to his strength. I'll say here what I've said over and over again, which is that in the country at large, Ron DeSantis is regarded as a controversial figure, as abnormal in some way, as a lightning rod. But in Florida, at least up until DeSantis ran for president, he wasn't. That's not the impression of Ron DeSantis that I hear. It didn't land. The Democrats certainly tried it, but it didn't land. And the reason for that was that when DeSantis picked a divisive fight, he did so on the back of issues that were 70-30. For example, the rules about what small children can be taught about sex. The rest of his agenda 
was either to the right of the nation but normal for Florida, that is, no income taxes, no taxes on capital gains, a reluctance to expand Medicaid, and so on, or for a conservative, somewhat heretical. Ron DeSantis is an environmentalist. By that, I do not mean that Ron DeSantis is an extremist or that DeSantis is interested in damaging the economy or in bowing down to Gaia. Uh, but DeSantis, and he's been hit for this nationally, prevented fracking on Floridian land. Swamps don't lend themselves to fracking particularly well. DeSantis has shepherded a whole bunch of initiatives to clean up lakes and maintain the Everglades and save manatees and so on and so forth. And Floridians notice that. He's also remarkably good when it comes to dealing with hurricanes. I thought that DeSantis should have run for president. Instead, he leaned in to the reputation that others had created for him. He went far too far, in my estimation, in his COVID skepticism, far beyond an opposition to lockdowns or mandatory vaccines and into some slightly kooky anti-vaccine talk. And he was too narrowly focused on anti-wokeness, which is not a problem for me as a conservative voter, but which I think confuses rank-and-file types. There are some who would say that his decision to sign the six-week abortion ban also hurt him in this regard. He didn't run nationally like he ran in Florida, which is ironic in one sense, in that the nation is to the left of Florida. Now, perhaps you have to change that calculation a little bit within a Republican primary. But I don't think you have to change it that much. And I don't think that his strategy, I know, Rich, you think he still got it right. I don't think his strategy of moving to the right of Trump and trying to pick up dissatisfied Trump types was the right one. I think he should have gone straight down the middle. I don't really believe in lanes. This is one thing I have learned from Donald Trump. I think the whole theory of lanes is a consultant journalist concoction and imposition on normal people of how we weirdos think. I think DeSantis got too focused on that stuff. I think he became too online. I think he started hanging out with people who didn't actually know much about America. And I think his candidacy reflected that. Now, does that mean that absent those mistakes, he would have beaten Trump? I have come to believe that the answer to that is no. But I think he'd have done better. Yeah, so I, I take a lot of those points. You know, it turns out his strategy was best suited for a race that Donald Trump wasn't participating in. And then if he wasn't participating in, you wouldn't have had to adopt the strategy because you, you wouldn't have been so so concerned about how, how you erode Trump's support and get around Trump and all that. Obviously, the fear was uh, if you ran as a more pragmatic, you know, I, I get it, got it done in Florida, you know, with hurricanes and protecting the Everglades and all that, he'd, he'd end up in kind of the Nikki Haley space. Um, but, you know, what, what he did didn't work. But what Nikki Haley did isn't, isn't working either. So it just maybe that that uh, uh, 
no strategy was going to work because you you came around um, at the end, or the, or the, both these figures, DeSantis and Haley, just aren't big enough. They're not they're not good enough. They're not compelling enough. And there's a lot to that as well. But Jim, something that he DeSantis Im- imported directly from how he had operated in Florida and how he won in 2022 was was freezing out the media, which which he could do in in Florida, and it worked fine. You know, in a race against uh, Charlie Crist. So they thought they were going to do that in a national race tour. Just talk to friendly uh, reporters, which was insane. And you know, we've gone back and forth about that Twitter Spaces and how consequential it was. I think Charlie and, and I were wrong that it was the end, but we were right that very bad, very bad sign. But he he went after that Twitter Spaces debacle. Um, he he went to do an interview with Trey Gowdy uh, on Fox that he could do. Any time he could call at that point, he, he had trouble getting on Fox at, at the end and got disenchanted uh, with Fox. But at that point, he could have called Fox and gone on any any show he wanted at any time, and that was the entirety of his announcement. And a uh, uh, desperately screwed up Twitter Spaces thing that didn't make sense, even if they didn't have the technological problems. And a Fox hit <laughs> that was his announcement. And there, you know, there's a lot of back and forth between the Super PAC and the campaign who really screwed this up. And they obviously, they both did, but I, I'm very sympathetic with the Super PAC people say, if you can screw if you can't do an announcement right, and you can't just get nice pictures of yourself with your wife and kids on every front page of every newspaper and B-roll in every TV station in the country, what are you doing? That's a really bad sign. And it was a really bad sign. Uh, but but he was just talking to you know Fox and friendly people. And obviously, you want the support of the conservative media, uh, or as much support as you can get when you're running in a Republican primary. But just the mainstream media is still extremely important. They set narratives that are extremely important that actually the conservative media is going to ask you about, even if you're not doing the, the mainstream media. And DeSantis is actually better in a combative role than he is being Mr. Friendly. I'm going to agree with you on everything, right? That this is like one of the advantages of his political personality. And they made that politically impossible, uh, uh, practically impossible. He wasn't going to talk to these people. So they finally realized that, that he should, uh, he should do that. But the media always hated him. Um, they, they knew he had contempt for them. They hated where he was ideologically and and they just were not they didn't have a shrewd or or big enough team big i mean in terms of stature to get around that you know george w bush had carl rove who knew every reporter had the respect even if they disagreed with them of every reporter because he's smart and he actually knew things and uh was was going to give them you know insights and and access uh same thing with david axelrod with with uh, barack obama desantis had no one like that yeah, I, I've heard, I haven't checked the ages, but somebody said that there wasn't a person on the DeSantis campaign who was older, I don't know, it was 45 or 50, it was, it was fairly young, that there was no old grizzled veteran around to say, hey, you know, actually they tried that back in 88 and it didn't work. That kind of just voice of reason, voice of experience, which, you know, often is, you don't actually have to have that person running the campaign, but it's good to have that voice of institutional experience in the room. Um I completely agree with a lot of what Charlie said, almost everything Charlie said. DeSantis, the man, had some flaws as a candidate. DeSantis, the campaign, did very, very little right. And I, I think early on, people, you know, people, I guess, were talking about it. Like A lot of his message for the first half of 2023 was culture war, culture war, culture war. Uh, you know, trans kids in schools and Disney and all that stuff. And this entire time, up to today, in to, you know, the number one issue on voters' minds in the overall electorate is the economy. It's inflation. It's cost of living. 
I, you know, I, I realize you're trying to win the Iowa caucus, but there's a part of me that's like, why you're narrow casting your message so much does you some damage. And like, I just would have put more, more variety in the issues that he's talking about. Uh, and he had this great record um, in Florida that like, yeah, he would bring it up, but it was, it was one of those things where he came across as just as a, the micro targeted um, and, and just, you know, it, it caught up with him. There was just a very limited room for margin for error. The entire idea of, well, we're going to have so much of this done by a super PAC that we can't communicate with. Like, I think in rec- I, I don't think anyone will be adopting that model for future presidential campaigns. Um, you know, the, I, I think what's there are a lot of things that are frustrating about this, high among them, um, the, the degree to which the, the sense that like there was a better DeSantis that could have been introduced to the country, that there was a better version of him that might have made it more of a contest. Um, one of the observations that I wrote about on Monday was just the degree to which I don't like this Trump video. So God sent us Trump trying to do the variation of the God's made a farmer yeah. speech. By which is, which is one of the greatest, greatest speeches in uh, American history. The it is. I don't know if we're using a sound alike or AI, whatever it is to say, oh no, God sent this guy. But like God sent a fighter was the, was a version that the DeSantis campaign did in the closing days of 2022, when it was clear he was going to romp over Charlie Crist. I, I personally, I find that a little blasphemous and also kind of just, you know, kind of annoying, but the whole message of DeSantis is I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. I fight. I fight. I don't quit. I'm never going to quit. Never back down is my super pack. Rah, rah, rah. And after one contest, he quits. He's like, I'm sorry. I, I lost, I lost Iowa. I'm out. Never mind. Um, it, it, you know, I, I'm left kind of asking, what was the point of the DeSantis camp? Like, how could you have been that surprised? And just finally, your last point about, the mainstream media governors very, always think they're ready for the pressures of a national campaign. And they very rarely are running for president is hard. And I don't care how well you've mastered the press corps, the, the tough, tough, those tough voices in the press corps of Tallahassee or any other state capital, the national press corps is much, much harder. They're much more, much more scrutiny. They're going to dig into your background. They're going to talk to all your old political enemies. They're going to repeat every anecdote that makes you look stupid. And, you know, with the National Press Corps, if you're not feeding the beast, the beast will eat you. You need to keep giving them new kinds of stories to tell about you that are at least somewhat positive or at least somewhat interesting or something like that. Otherwise, they'll find their own stories that make you look like an idiot. And like, and you, you, like yes, DeSantis had the toughest uh, job because he was getting it from the Democrats. He was getting it from Trump. Really, he was getting it from anybody not named Ron DeSantis. But they just came across as being really unprepared for the scale of the challenge before them. Yeah, so a, cu- a couple things I'll throw out to you, Noah. So one, we should, and I'm not saying anyone's saying this, but just to emphasize the point, the guy who's running the Ron DeSantis campaign was Ron DeSantis, right? So this whole thing, you know, Jeff Rowe screwed up the Super PAC. I don't know, maybe screwed up the, the Super PAC. But at the end of the day, everything was set by DeSantis and, and all the, the mistakes either went directly to him and his decision-making or reflected his his blind his blind spots and how, how he operates. And I, I was talking to a reporter I respect down in Florida for a column I did on why the media hates DeSantis so much. And I was like, it's really weird because usually, you know, you, even if you get this like huge downdraft of, of stories about how terrible you are and your campaign's awful, just for the sake of inter- sheer interest, if nothing else, 
some the media at least tries to do a resurrection story or they're doing a little better than you think or they're doing this right that you wouldn't expect. And he said he tried to do one of those and they just wouldn't cooperate. You know, we had this experience at NR. One of our reporters was was out on the trail, wanted to talk to DeSantis briefly, you know, kind of pull aside interview. And they're like, the DeSantis, it has to, the story has to be about this. <laughs> you know, we're like, no, we can't guarantee it's going to be that about that. So, okay, we're not, we're not going to talk to you. So it's, there, there was like a, an arrogance and sort of a bristling element to the whole operation that w- was very off-putting um, even to uh, allies. But no, I, w- I want to uh, th- throw to you just the, the question of um, the problem. One of the problems is e- even, even if you had run sort of the Charlie be true to myself campaign, and that is usually a good rule of thumb because authenticity also played in, into his his problems. And even if there had been a, a um, you know robust market for that in the primary, I'm not sure there was, but let's hypothetically there is. The, the performance ability is, was still not there. He's just a, a leaden campaigner. And I, I, I remember one light moment the entire campaign, Caitlin Collins, he brings out this Caitlin Clark a jersey, uh, basketball jersey, because Nikki Haley messed up their their names. Besides that, it's it's hard to think of one. Like when he started out, like before he got in the race, he'd occasionally try some Biden jokes at the beginning. We're going to send him back to the basement. Not really funny, but like pointed in a maybe amusing way. And then he, he wouldn't even do that anymore. And Charlie and I were on with the great Megyn Kelly yesterday, and we're, we're talking about this. And I said, as I've been saying for a while, Trump says 10 funnier things of the average rally than DeSantis has ever said in uh, his life. And she said, no, no, actually, Rich, I was at a dinner with him. And he was funny. He was entertaining. He had great stories. And, you know, saying, so what should have happened is everything he said funny ever, someone should have um, written it down and they should try it out in front of uh, a, a rally. And if it works, you know, great, keep it. You know, you can say it, you can, you campaigning, you can use the joke, the same joke 300 times. Doesn't matter that you're sick of it or reporters are sick of it. Everyone who's coming to your rally has heard it for the first time, probably, you know, that they might have picked it up on TV, but there didn't seem to be even interest in, in, in doing that. And so there was just kind of a a lack of, uh, you know, this favorable state high among, high among Republicans, they kind of like them, but there, there was no, no bond there or really, uh, seemingly any ability of DeSantis or a certain level of interest in doing the things that create an emotional bond. So the theory, your theory, Rich, if, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, please, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the inauthenticity problem was an outgrowth of the voters who they were targeting, which is, you know, insofar as I have a diagnosis about the problem of the DeSantis campaign, it was that they were targeting voters who were by far the loudest, but not the largest contingent within the GOP. Roughly your yeah. So the inauthenticity was a a product of the strategy. Yes, in part, Charlie's point is not running as as himself, and fear of saying the wrong thing because he knew, and this is not crazy, that voters are sensitive about criticisms of Trump, so he had to criticize him somewhat to try to make the case for him. But if he said the wrong things, he'd be totally screwing himself that's that's why you get the the sense of nervousness and caution and can i say this or not say this which you you don't get with with more you know freewheeling uh, um authentic candidates which trump has you know to an excess yeah i suppose that perhaps approximates my view um i wrote my pre of the DeSantis campaign on november 3rd 
and I don't see any reason to amend a single word that I wrote. There's some was that, effort was that the, to absolve. It's Ron DeSantis' fault. Was that the headline of that? Or was, I'm thinking of something else. That's right. There we go. It's DeSantis' fault. Is I'm an attentive uh, um, editor-in-chief, Noah. Thank you. I <laughs> appreciate that. That's actually good recall. Um, there's some effort out there to absolve Ron DeSantis of the mistakes he made. The indictments, they made it impossible. Environmental factors, they favored Trump. The guy's personality is all-consuming, and he's more of a happy warrior than people give him credit for. Blah, 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 blah. I don't buy it. I think they targeted, they wanted to target a demographic in the Republican Party that exists in consultants' heads and on social media, and it is not the largest contingent of Republican voters. When he did emphasize his record in Florida, for example, he made some mistakes on that on that end. One of the things he emphasized pro, to a prohibitive degree was his record on COVID, which was a mistake at the time. And it was obviously a mistake at the time. When I was writing my last book in 2020, 2021, I studiously avoided mentioning the pandemic. Why? Because anybody who knows anything about past pandemics knows that people don't want to look back on them. And I thought I was almost a little bit wrong there in 2021 in the off-year elections because there did seem to be something of a reckoning, yeah. something I desperately wanted. Right. But then it disappeared because the issue disappeared. Yep. And then everybody wanted to forget about the pandemic and didn't want to be reminded of the pandemic, which is exactly what you expect of pandemics. If you have a history of understanding what they, how, they, how they unfold and how people respond to them in, in retrospect, it was obviously wrong to do that. But they stuck with it, refusing to change tracks in, in, a, in a really pig-headed way. Likewise, his opposition to aid for Ukraine. That is a 50-50 proposition in the Republican Party. You wouldn't know it to hear people on social media talk about it. I mean, you might know it if you were to parse what Donald Trump says about it. Who has not expressed his opposition to funding for Ukraine, by the way? You would think that he mm -hmm. has, given his supporters' zeal in support of uh, abandoning the cause. But that's really an illusory role, a real uh, illusory um, understanding of the Republican electorate. He's leaned into market skepticism and protectionism in a way that doesn't reflect actual conservatives and Republicans' views on the subject. He wanted to pardon January 6 rioters. Why? To outflank Vivek Ramaswamy? What are you doing? The Twitter spaces stuff was indicative of an approach to campaigning because it wasn't just an, a one-off. He siloed himself in alternative media for so long to the point where he was actually confessing at the end of his campaign that it was a mistake. Good for him. One of the few he's ever admitted to. But that sounds crazy. It shouldn't sound crazy in retrospect alone. It was crazy at the time to silo yourself like that and expect your message to get broad purchase. How? Because of earned media that it would somehow uh, redound beyond the, the small venues in which you'd isolated yourself. It was a foolish approach to campaigning predicated on an idea of the Republican electorate as being much different from the one that exists in the real world. It's the Republican electorate that exists on Twitter and X, whatever we call it now. And then we know that's not the real world. We knew it at the time. There were ample opportunities for this campaign to perform a 180. And that's what it had to do, a complete 180 degree pivot. And it just wouldn't do it. So Ron DeSantis was committed to a losing course early in the fall. It was obvious by the fall. And the fact that they couldn't change course was, I think, reflective of... Uh, as you, you're right. I mean, it was DeSantis's choices, obviously. Perhaps even Casey DeSantis, given the so, reporting that we've so seen. So where, where I disagree Florida. with you is I think, the, I think the voters they are targeting, I think they're basically right to look at the party, and I may have the percentages wrong, is a 30-30, 30 proposition, 30... You're, 
always Trump. You're never going to get 30 in theory, persuadable and 30 never. Um, and, and I think that that was the strategy to target those people. But, but in terms of being overly Twitter obsessed, yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, they thought all that stuff mattered and it, it didn't make any difference. And on Ukraine, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm more downbeat on where the party is, is headed on this than, than you are, but it just, it never, there was never the shred of sincerity and, and, and what are you saying about Ukraine? I, I mean, when we talk about inauthenticity, that's the, that may be the main issue where, where it, uh, um, where, where, where uh, you, you got the sense. It's a low salience issue and it's salient for a particular slice of the Republican electorate that thinks elections are culture wars and they want to prosecute them against the people who marginally identify as Republican, but they also want to expel them from the party. Uh, it's, 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 it's politics by subtraction, which is just not how you do it. He, he, he approached this race with the most hostility possible to the most people who are most receptive to his message, Trump skeptical voters. Yeah, and that's, that's the other thing. He wanted to alienate them. Last thing. That's last insane. Thing we, we've obviously all thought about this um, a lot. He just never, you know, I understand the theory. You, you get your beachhead in, in the middle, although it's not, not uh, really a beachhead if it's in, in the middle. And then, and then you widen out to the, the, the not Trump element. But he never showed like any interest in the not Trump element. Like he was scared of the not Trump element. So how are you going to win these people? That never made any sense. Anyway, it was a difficult challenge at the very least to be running against Donald Trump this year. Charlie Cook exit question to you. Ron DeSantis has a bright future, underline bright future in the Republican Party going forward. Yes or no? Well, I assume you mean nationally. And I think the answer is probably no. Although I think the next two years in Florida are going to be pretty good if you live here because he's been a good governor and he'll continue to be so. Jim Garrity. Uh, no, Rich. You know, four years from now, he's not going to have the advantage of coming off a big reelection win. He's not going to have uh, everything from COVID will be further back in the rearview mirror. Um, you know, it's conceivable that like by that point, okay, the party's ready to go, you know, either Trump will be too term limited Although, by the way, if Trump wins, you know they're going to try to amend the Constitution. Um, yeah, I, I just don't see it. I, I don't see how, unless he like really, you know, does on an Aaron Rodgers sensory deprivation tank and just comes out a completely different, more charming, warm, winsome personality. Uh, I think this was the best shot that not only did he get, most people do not have as good a shot as he had in this particular cycle. Noah? I expect him to try. I expect him to try to make himself as viable to the to the MAGA Republican as possible, which will be he'll be aided by Donald Trump, who will not select anybody who even remotely looks like a successor to his movement. So there will be some some open space there. But I think he'll further alienate the people who would make him into that figure by just trying as hard as he has tried in, in this race. I think the answer is no. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrett, you've been watching the TV show Reacher. Yes. Um, people talk about this golden age of television we've been in, and a lot of it just completely misses me. Uh, every time somebody's raving about some great new show on streaming, like, oh, it's about this drug dealer who has cancer, and his wife got hit by a car, and now she's handicapped, and the brothers, and, and all that stuff. Reacher is a very simple show based on a very popular thriller novel series about a guy named Reacher who's friggin' huge and who generally doesn't, you know, isn't eager to be a vigilante, but who keeps finding, you know, people keep, uh, keeps running into people who need help, people who are being threatened. 
and he just used his massive size and muscles and previous experience as a uh, military police investigator to do right, beat up the bad guys, and it's just good, old-fashioned, almost like a 1980s action movie uh, style of a show. It's on Amazon Prime, and I've really enjoyed it. So speaking of streaming, I'm not much of a streamer and uh, did not get a chance to, to watch many shows, but I'm really looking forward to this Masters of the Air, which uh, <laughs> is dropping in a couple of days. Noah, you're going to try to keep up in terms of a, a football light item. Don't mess it up. Yeah. We're, we're not, I, we won't be overly critical, I promise. Uh, I don't think I can, actually. I think I've got this one nailed. Mm-hmm. Went to a friend's house for a, uh, a, a party for Ravens Texans. With, with 100 people? Your 100 best neighbors, right? Well, it wasn't my party. <laughs> oh, okay. Small affair. Much more sparsely <laughs> attended. Um, but I think I'm beginning to see what you guys... Uh, you know, I really appreciate about this sport because the catering was awesome. <laughs> Chicken Rondazzo, never had it, really enjoyed it. Very good wine, some great company, saw some old friends, catched up, caught up with them, you know, made some future plans. This football thing, <laughs> there's something to be said for it. <laughs> yeah, definitely playoff football. You get that that aspect of it. Charlie, you saw Napoleon. And liked I did. It. I'd say I enjoyed that game too because the Texans lost. It's always good when the, <laughs> the Texans lose. Oh, I that. was <laughs> I was told that the problem with the movie Napoleon is that it is quite obviously brazen British anti-French propaganda. And I watched it and I ended up enjoying it because it is quite obviously brazen British anti-French <laughs> propaganda. I see nothing wrong whatsoever with cutting that man down to size. No pun intended. That's also propaganda, by the way. He wasn't actually short. I enjoyed it. I grew up being told that's who Napoleon was. I am happy to be indulged in my bigotries there. And although I've been educated on this topic by Andrew Roberts, I stay steadfastly of the view that he was a baddie. Yeah, my problem with that, he wasn't even really a monster in the movie. He was just like an idiot, you know, a charmless uh, idiot who, who, you know, a charmless guy who never would have gotten anywhere in the, the Republican primaries when, of course, he was like incredibly compelling personality but i agree with you on the uh, the substance of of napoleon so on a, a lighter note i hadn't really eaten ramen noodles since college or i guess shortly after college but i'm always in the market for food that's really quick and easy to make you know i'm a instant mashed potatoes guys we've discussed before uh, so I got some ramen noodles. You know, they cost two bucks. They cost two minutes to make, uh, and and they they taste pretty good. And my wife's like, "This these 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 things are so horrible for you." I was like, "Wow, well, back in the be they're just they're just noodles." And uh, so so I, I made uh, some some ramen noodles, and and they were kind of close to the top of the bowl. I had them in, and I put in the flavor packet, which was chicken, and it spilled a little bit on the counter, and I, I wiped it up, and and then you know brought it into my office and enjoyed my ramen noodles. And then a couple hours later, she's like. You know, didn't I tell you these things are really healthy? And I was like, what? And it's like, look, it's staying the counter. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And it, it dripped down onto the cabinets, on the, these white white cabinets underneath the counter. And she's like, I can't get it off. And I spent like, I was like, oh, of course you can get it off. And I spent like 45 minutes, like trying to desperately prove myself right that you could get this off. And I couldn't. It just it, it fundamentally like uh, irrevocably stained uh, this, this uh, wood white painted 
cabinet. So maybe the the, the dye, the artificial coloring in the ramen noodles is a, a little strong, but it's uh, it's still good. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? I'm going to go with Michael Brendan Doherty's When Donald Was Absent. Uh, MBD and I do not see eye to eye in a lot of things, but out of all my colleagues, he's one might be one who, like, you know, when he makes this case against a viewpoint I usually have, he's the one who makes me go, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, here is a, you know, blunt, direct argument against Trump making the point that in 2020, uh, Trump's had faced two major crises, one being the pandemic and the other being the riots coming out of the George Floyd protests. Uh, and, you know, MBD summarizes in 2020, Trump watched cities burn and he tweeted. And I think, you know, it's interesting to hear people who are making the case for Trump because we need law and order. Or I saw somebody saying we need to reelect Trump to make sure we don't have you know, shutdowns of schools again. All this stuff happened on his watch. You're all just assuming, well, the second time around, he'll learn. Uh, which doesn't sound like a very compelling argument, but a uh, good piece by MBD and everybody should read it. Noah. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. There's so many to MBD's piece is great. Andy's piece on uh, the limits of hidden immunity is great. Jack Butler's piece on DeSantis's campaign being too online was great, but I'm going to focus on Dan McLaughlin's very liberating uh, permission structure that he's established for us with quote, we don't have to pretend the voters are always right. And we don't. All of us have experienced this, and I'm so tired of bending over backwards for it. The tremendous chip on the shoulder of Trump supporters who have been told ad nauseum, flattered to the point of obsequiousness by, uh, by individuals in the conservative media space and elsewhere that their lots are not their own in life. They are beset by forces beyond their control. They are the proletarian ideal, righteous and virtuous in all things. And to criticize their choices in any way is reflective of some kind of a weird myopia, some elitism that renders you unworthy of being paid attention to. It's all noxious nonsense. Dan McLaughlin is absolutely right. He lays it out in detail. Um, it's an unassailable case, and I loved it. You should go read it. Charlie, what's your pick? So I noted this on a quarter, but I'm a movie idiot, as I've told our listeners, and I watched this movie, The Boys in the Boat, because I saw others had watched it, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll have something interesting to say about it, which I didn't. Uh, I liked it. That was my takeaway from this movie. And then I read Maddie's review about The Boys in the Boat, and I realized that every single one of her criticisms was correct. And then I liked the movie a lot less, because then I couldn't unsee the things that she'd said. So I'm, I'm picking this just because I'm impressed by anyone who can deconstruct movies, which is a skill I notably lack. So Charlie, isn't this our long running contention about the life of Pi, which you uh, reviewed and had plot spoilers without warning, at least not to your, your editor reading it uh, yeah. before it was posted. Yeah. Didn't you kind of want to be right about movies or yeah. is that just like a one off? Well, I thought I would try it, but I, I can't do it. Decided it was, I, it was a one off. I did it and then realized. So I'm, my pick is also Dan McLaughlin, the couple pieces he's done about the Ch Chevron deference, which is a hugely important topic. We haven't gotten to it on this podcast. Maybe the oral argument is going to be too uh, distant for us to do it uh, in a, an episode subsequent to this one. So if you're really regretting that we haven't discussed it, don't worry. You can go and read Dan McLaughlin and know absolute everything you need to know. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte. 
who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Bound by Oath and How the World Works. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.